A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And well, yes, of course, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else since the fall And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we're going to be joined by Father Mark Vickers, the author of God in Number 10. We'll learn more about the faith of those who've led our country and look at faith in Downing Street today. But before that, the news at the weekend was full of the heart-rending story of two-year-old Awab Ishak, who died from breathing problems caused by rampant mould in his family's housing association flat. The inquest was told that he had fungus growing in his lungs due to the dreadful living conditions. What makes this even worse is that Awab's father had spent three years requesting repairs to be made, but he was repeatedly turned away, as was the family's health visitor, who twice had her concerns dismissed. The Housing Association has expressed remorse, sacked its chief executive and vowed that lessons will be learned. But this situation is not even uncommon. My MP's postbag brings cases to my attention about poor quality housing in the private and rented sectors. And a recent ITV news investigation into mould and damp problems in homes found more than 800,000 houses affected by this issue. They featured people forced to live the most appalling and upsetting living conditions. Walls entirely covered in mould, leaks pouring through ceilings, families obliged to live in one room, their physical and mental health suffering, their dignity sapped away, and very often with nobody from the authorities seemingly willing to do anything about it. How on earth are we in a situation in 2022 where, according to the English Housing Survey, 9% of England's housing stock fails to meet the statutory minimum standard for housing because of a Category 1 hazard. Category 1 hazards include damp and mould amongst 29 other dangers to health and safety, including excess heat or cold, asbestos, overcrowding, drainage problems and electrical hazards. Of course, there is a legal requirement for landlords and housing associations to tackle these issues, but too often we see that tenants' conditions and concerns are ignored or dismissed. The story of Little Awab gets right to the heart of what it means to be human. We can tell so much about society by how we treat one another. What value do we place upon the life of others and what should in practice as well as law be an acceptable standard of living? One that means people have access to a safe and sanitary home and are not made to live in cramped and squalid conditions. One where concerns are not treated with annoyance or indifference by those with the ability to tackle them. And it pains me to say that those who are forced into such dreadful living conditions tend to be the poorest in our society, often immigrant or of non-white heritage and quite simply treated as less than human. We saw this attitude in the circumstances that led to the Grenfell Tower fire in 2017 and its aftermath. And we see it too often in the way that asylum seekers and refugees are treated and spoken about. These are all deeply Christian issues. Every human bears the image of God, and that confers great lofty dignity on every single one of us. And the Bible carries stern commands about the way we should treat each other. The welfare of our neighbours is linked to our own at a fundamental spiritual level. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of the day when he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
He warns that those who do not care for others in need will be turned away. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. This reveals the heart that our Father God has for all people. So how can we respond? Well, let us pray for compassion and dignity to be given to those who have the least. Let us pray for a change of attitude practically in our own lives, but more widely in our society. A recognition that the authorities are there to serve the population, that landlords have a duty to look after their tenants, and that they must not seek to use legal, practical or financial excuses to avoid action. Let's pray for all those involved in the provision and administration of housing services. Of course, many show great care and concern and do so under the pressure of extremely limited resources. But others have become disillusioned and careworn. Let us pray that they will understand their responsibility to respect and protect those under their care and that they will desire to use their powers to make a positive difference in the lives of others. The language of rights is common in our secular society, but this language comes from a Christian worldview because we have a duty to love others in a practical and sacrificial way. Then it follows that God has given rights to our neighbours to receive that love and care. Awab had rights and we did not meet them. May God forgive us and may he lead us now to defend the rights of others. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to our guest today, Mark Vickers, author of God in Number 10. Uh, Mark, it's a delight to have you with us. How are you? Morning, Tim. It's good to be here. So I'm good. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, uh, Mark, first of all, let's let's talk to you about your faith before we go into this fascinating book that you've written. Um, tell us what brought you to faith and then what took you into the priesthood. So faith has always been there. So I came from a practicing Christian family. Half my family were Anglicans, half my family were Methodists, a lot of lay preachers there. So that, and it was the understated, just a part of life. Uh, I thought I had life mapped out and so far I was going to so far go into law but just as a means of going into politics so, uh, and it was all planned I got my degree I went to law school I was called to interview for a, a selection committee so so far and then God had other plans and so far yeah. in quite a so far or in some ways dramatic way so so far it was very clear that life was going to head in another direction I came to London so far I got involved in a congregation which was much more lively. The preaching made a great deal more sense. And it seemed very clear. And in a very short space of time, so far, having been a lawyer who's going to go into politics, I find myself studying for the priesthood in Rome, so far, but absolutely no regrets. But obviously politics did stay with you because you've, you've retained sufficient fascination to yes. write this book. So how did that come about? Well, in some ways, I think... Uh, if you've been interested in politics and the party politics can recede to a certain extent and you feel that God is calling you to serve uh, him and his people in a different way. But it's always there in the blood to some extent. You end up uh, staying up far too late on election nights, <laughs> watching the results come in, sort of paying attention to what's happening in public life. In the immediate term, the, the way it happened is I was visiting a friend in the States. I had a long journey flight ahead of me. I picked up a book off his shelf. And there was a chapter on Arthur Balfour, and I thought I knew my modern British prime ministers reasonably well, and I was very surprised to discover that Balfour, as a statesman, as a cabinet minister, as a prime minister, was writing and lecturing on philosophy and natural theology, and he was having seances in Downing Street. 
And I thought if this was the case with Balfour, what didn't I know about the faith of the other prime ministers? And the answer was a huge amount because it wasn't so much that religion didn't interest the prime ministers, it didn't interest political biographers. So therefore you'll just uh, struggle to discover much about the religion of the prime ministers. And the book is God in Number 10, which looks at the, the faith of those who occupy Number 10 from, well, throughout the 20th century, from Balfour to Blair. So you start off with Balfour and discover that this is a man who um, did sort of, sort of spooky spiritualist things in, in, in Number 10. <laughs> yeah. Now, what, what other things surprised you when you were researching the book about the people who have occupied that great office? I think the biggest surprise is the fact that the Prime Ministers went in completely the opposite direction to the British population as a whole. And mm. on any basis, and we have to say that Britain became a more secular country in the course of the 20th century, and numbers held up reasonably well until the 1960s, although declining in terms of a growing population. From the 1960s, there uh, has been a gradual decline from the 1990s, quite precipitous. So you'd expect the Prime Ministers probably to mirror that. And my finding was it's completely the opposite. So in the first half of the century, up to the mid-1950s, they're all skeptics, they have their doubts, they're bonkers. There's only really one orthodox, practicing, believing Christian, that's Stanley Baldwin. And then from Macmillan in 1957, it goes completely the other direction. So with the exception probably just of Jim Callahan, they would have all described themselves as believing Christians. And in many cases, that was very much backed up in terms of practice. In terms of practice, so as you said, it, it was very surprising to you. And therefore, when I spoke to you earlier, having then read the book, surprising to me also that in the first half of the 20th century, um, the majority of uh, prime ministers of the United yeah. Kingdom were, were not believers, or at least not, and not even nominally so, really. Yeah. In the second half, the majority were. Why do you think that might have been? So I tried to sort of analyse why they weren't believing in the first half of the century. And Balfour, uh, Arthur Balfour takes up sort of his mission, and, and he gives himself a mission at the beginning of his career to reconcile faith and religion. Because we've got to remember that Charles Darwin's Origins of the Species had just come out. There were other sort of scientific discoveries in the 19th century, which in some ways might have seemed to have disproved a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis. But my findings are science wasn't really the problem. So from quite an early stage, uh, Christians believing, thinking Christians could reconcile the claims of science and religion. That wasn't so much the problem. The problem was far more sort of uh, biblical scholarships, modern biblical criticism, uh, starting in Germany in the 19th century, but particularly popularized by a man called Ernest Renan, uh, a Frenchman who wrote a book in 1863 called The Life of Christ, which went through dozens and dozens of editions in, uh, in translation as well. And they were all, re all reading him, all the early prime ministers read him. And uh, in some ways, he was quite compelling. He had a very engaging style. He wrote with a personal first-hand knowledge of the Holy Land. He gutted the gospel of any supernatural content. So, divinity of Christ, the miracles, the resurrection, they were all out. And with actually very little scholarship behind it, it was just his personal pre preference. Mm. He decided that this, this didn't fit his image of Jesus, so he dropped it. But the problem is they all read him and they thought that he disproves of uh, any uh, claim to divinity of Christ, 
any supernatural basis for religion. Jesus could still be understood as a moral example, a good man, but that was it. So, so for, and therefore they did turn to spiritualism. If they thought they couldn't, there was, uh, the, the doctrine of the resurrection had been disproved. They wanted some sort of assurance that their loved ones survived, there was eternal life. And they looked to ghosts and to spiritualism, to seances for that. And it is sad. So, for example, you get Winston Churchill, who had read Renan, mm. and he was interviewing Geoffrey Fisher for the position of Archbishop of Canterbury in 1943. And Churchill, not unreasonably, turns around to Geoffrey Fisher and says, have you read Renan? So one of the most trenchant uh, critics of uh, Christianity. Uh, and Fisher says no. And Churchill was quite shocked, and I think he was right to be shocked. And so I think the church didn't do so for people many favors in the early 20th century. There were lots of intellectual questions out there. And the church, um, on the whole, didn't come up with answers. And the, the problem was there are answers and very compelling answers, but the church wasn't giving them in the early 20th century. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Father Mark Vickers, the author of God in number 10. So if we find that our leaders are or are not Christians, does it matter? Yes, uh, so far, it matters a great deal, so far, in all kinds of ways. And so far, again, in doing my research, there weren't too many policy decisions you could point to and say that the fact that the prime minister was a Christian made a difference specifically. There are some you can and some you have your suspicions that it influenced their decisions. It's much more the kind of people they were. So, so you get someone like Lloyd George, who uh, is brought up very much uh, a fiercely practicing Welsh Baptist background. And yet, at a personal level, he rejects all of that at the very early stage. He's prepared to go along with it sometimes in the constituency, sing hymns, as sort of a appear to be the good chapel game Baptists, but it wasn't the case. And again, another conclusion is I found on the whole, the prime ministers to be a much more decent set of people than I was necessarily expecting them to be. Uh, I'm prepared to make a, an exception for Lloyd George. And so far, <laughs> I think he's a real rogue. So far, he was engaging in the sale of political honors. Uh, he had, I thought, think a terrible relationship with his mistress. And so far, uh, it's alleged that he forced her to have abortions, that so far, to enter a suicide pact with her. And that's the lack of faith, really. And then you get someone like Stanley Baldwin come along, thinking that, knowing that he's had this spiritual reawakening in the course of the First War, that God has placed him in public life uh, to do a particular service. And he says this specifically, he says, as prime minister and publicly, if I didn't think I was advancing the kingdom of God uh, in my work as prime minister, I would resign my office immediately. And he saw his divinely appointed mission as bringing healing to politics, to national life, reaching across the political divide. It caused him no problem that the Labour Party was emerging at this time. He wanted to educate them for office. He, he reached across the Chamber of the Commons and said, let us pray together. Let us pray to the Lord together. Uh, he had this sense of uh, a mission of healing, both in ending corruption, but also sort of uh, healing between social classes in industrial relations. It makes a big difference. And I hesitate to say this to you, but perhaps politicians sometimes think that they can sort of, uh, fool the public, parliament, press. It makes a huge difference if you believe, if you know that one day you are accountable to God from whom no things are hidden. So, so uh, uh, it makes a difference uh, as well. So, 
at least three of the earlier prime ministers uh, had a real sense of sadness because they felt uh, they were deprived this assurance of eternal life. And it was almost amounted to clinical depression in the cases of mm. some of them. So you have Bonner Law, you have Ramsay MacDonald and Churchill towards the end of their lives. It really weighed down on, on them. And I think it uh, affected their aptitude for office. Whereas those who believe, so another, uh, an example from the other side would be Harold Macmillan. So so a deep personal Christian faith. He was sustained by prayer, by his reading of scripture, by the sacraments, both to cope with the pain of war wounds, which had been sustained during the First World War, and also quite a tragic uh, personal uh, yeah. family life. So that, And you can see that it's faith that uh, sustains him all, all of that. And he says decency is a good thing, but by itself it's not enough because people don't know where their values are coming from. So that he said decency, he said better decent than indecent, but uh, decency by itself isn't enough. The nation uh, needs religion. Now, let's see if we can tempt you into the 21st century. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought you might. We, well, we have a, a prime minister now who um, is, I think, the first prime minister who has uh, followed another mainstream religion. Yes. Um, if we, although we could, we could, we've talked about spiritualism and so on. So maybe, maybe not entirely. But the, the first mainstream religion other than Christianity in number ten. Do you think that makes any difference? It's interesting. I think right up until the 1990s, the establishment could obviously cope with agnostic and even an atheist in, in Downing Street, despite the fact they were appointing Church of England bishops. That didn't cause the establishment too much of a problem. I think right up to the 1990s, it was difficult to see either a Catholic or a uh, believing non-Christian in Downing Street, Muslim, Hindu, whatever, so far. Obviously, that's no longer the case. We ask ourselves why that is, and Britain is obviously a more pluralistic society. I suspect, sadly, probably also indifference, because although so far, there's quite a lot of comment on Rishi's so far, Asian heritage, there wasn't that much comment on the fact that he was a Hindu. And I didn't know too much about Rishi's faith, but I have read one or two things which he said, and he said that he is a person of faith. It's important to him. It gives him a sense of purpose. It gives him his strength. Um, we read that um, uh, he is practicing. So, so, uh, so anything that causes people to sort of, uh, see political life from a wider perspective, to ask the bigger questions, can only be important. So, so um, I think that's obviously good. So it's obviously good from our perspective that I think he's got quite a good grasp of Christianity. He went to Winchester where he would have gone to chapel every Sunday. They had prayers, reflections in their house, schoolhouse system every evening. I'm told that he's happy attending his Anglican parish church in some of his constituents in Richmond. So I think he's got a broad faith understanding and that's only to be welcomed. Looking back over the last few years, there's been certainly questions about integrity in number yes. 10 and the extent to which that draws from people having a faith i'm always careful not to suggest that people who are not christians are not mm. moral i think if we read our bible well we understand that we all have a sense of right and wrong we just maybe atheists haven't worked out where they've got it from yes. but do you think that we can see in the in the actions of our of our leaders uh, something which betrays whether or not they do have a personal faith 
It's interesting. So often morals survive. Surprisingly, so often morals survive more uh, more than faith, more than doctrinal belief. Mm. So you get someone like Clement Attlee, who famously said he rejected the mumbo jumbo because of uh, the doctrine mm. of Christianity, but he believed in the ethics. And there's an American called Sherry Waddell who says that God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. I think what he means by that is that you can be brought up in a Christian, a practicing, believing home, and you can pick up and continue the values for a while. And she'd suggest not much more than, than a generation. So mm. you can certainly see prime ministers who've got good moral people. And I, I class Clement Attlee among, uh, among those. Uh, you have to ask how far it's going to continue, as you suggest. So if we don't know what the source of those values are, if we aren't in contact with uh, a living God, so if we don't have a real faith, so, so gradually it will become, does this suit me? So if, uh, is this, does it match up with so far why I see the world at the moment? There isn't the sense that we're given something, and it is a gift, it's a treasure uh, that we are called to apply in difficult times and in good times. And if we don't know where that's coming from, if we're not supported by this contact with the Lord, so, so, uh, then in the difficult times, we're more likely to say, okay, so for, let's compromise, let's uh, so for, accommodate with the world. So, so, for, so I, it's important. I, so I, I agree with you completely. So, so for, there are many good moral people out there who are not explicitly so believing, practicing people of faith, uh, but it, it makes a difference. It seems very sad we have to leave it there. Uh, I feel like we've reached the end of our time, but I want to genuinely encourage all our listeners to take up uh, get, take up the book, God in Number 10. It's a superb piece of work. Uh, fascinating insight to the people who led our country through the 20th century and begs lots of questions about the, the century we are now in. And maybe a reminder, as you've just suggested, if God has no grandchildren and that uh, the, the danger is we get too detached from the faith that perhaps underpins the the values of our western societies and british society in particular that potentially has ramifications that even those who say they don't believe in god would uh, not be all that comfortable with mark what a blessing to have you with us thanks ever so much thank you very much indeed god bless bye each week we give you the opportunity for you to ask a question any question that you'd like about this mucky business of politics it may be how an aspect of this world impacts us as Christians who work within it. Or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. This week, Miranda sent in this question. Dear Tim, I bet you are an expert at this. Like many of your listeners, I'm hosting the first big family Christmas since lockdowns began. I am genuinely blessed to have a large extended family, all talkative with diverse political views. What is the friendliest way to move conversations away from political arguments over lunch? What do you do if, for example, a keen Brexiteer at your church wants to argue about politics after the service and you don't? Oh, that's a great question, Miranda. Thank you for asking it. It occurred to me not long ago, only literally in the last couple of weeks, people do talk to me about politics and about work, shall we say, after church. But it occurred to me that part of my service as a Christian is just that. Um, but I suppose many of the things that people who will talk to me uh, about, they may be their personal problems and issues, a housing issue, for example. And that's a different kettle of fish. Someone who starts telling me that you know, we're being lied to by the mainstream media about the virus or by the vaccine or something, that might be a different kettle of fish. 
in the end, at the family dinner table, we have fewer political disagreements. And I'm it's very sad to say more disagreements about who Jesus Christ is. But I think when it comes to disagreements about politics from a Christian perspective, one of the best things to do is say this is important, but it's not eternally important. Remember, every single empire, ideology, political party, referendum result or government, they're all temporary. They're all passing. God will use them mightily one way or another, but they are temporary. What really matters is where you stand over who Jesus is. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end our time together in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we know that you love our Bishak um, and we put him in your hands now and pray you'd have mercy upon his soul. We pray for his parents, his family, that you'd be with them, that you'd comfort them and you'd draw them to you, Lord Jesus, the only answer to uh, their suffering. Uh, Lord, we pray for us as a society that we would understand that to love our neighbour is to practically go out of our way sacrificially to do so, um, and that every single human being, whatever background they are from, is of enormous value and importance to you, made in your image, holding utterly lofty dignity. May we remember that in the face of every single human being we come across today and going forward. Lord, we thank you for Father Mark Vickers, and we thank you for the great book that he's written, God in Number 10. And we thank you for that it makes us reflect upon the importance of making good arguments for Christianity uh, and drawing people to consider the truth of your claims, Lord Jesus. We also think about how important it is that we have people uh, who follow you within number 10, not just the holder of the office of prime minister, but all the official civil servants, special advisors and junior ministers and all the rest of those who are around the administration. We know there are Christians uh, amongst those in number 10 today. We pray you strengthen them, keep them faithful to you. And we thank you for Rishi Sunak. We thank you uh, that he has a faith. We thank you that he attends a church. And we thank you, Lord, that he is somebody who says that um, that, uh, that values and faith matter to him. I pray you'd strengthen him, give him wisdom, um, show him who you are, Lord Jesus, and help him to succeed and to honour you in his time as Prime Minister. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. 